the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Blarg turns out to be a nuanced, semantically coded phoneme used by orcs to express ironic disdain with a measure of respect for one's opponent to the degree that the attacker believes that they warrant pre-fight softening up and finally, if ended with a hard G, indicating a desire for strawberry ice cream after the massacre. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have Brendan Dubois on the podcast. Brendan talks about his new novel, Black Triumph, which is the third entry and the finale to his wonderful Dark Victory series of books about humans fighting back against an overwhelming alien invasion that has left teenagers in the trenches. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. What a great month for new releases from Bane. Happy October. Uncompromising Honor is finally here. Honor is back. This is it, the climax of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series, and Honor is in top form. The time has come. The Manticoran Star Kingdom and its allies go to war against the massive and corrupt Solarian Empire. After a tragic loss, Honor Harrington enters the fray once again. She's filled with steely resolve, possessed of cold competence and motivated by a fiery determination to take the fight to the enemy and end its menace forever. Also out in October is Black Triumph by Brendan Dubois. The war for the future is on. 16-year-old Randy Knox, a newly minted lieutenant in the U.S. Army, has been fighting the alien creepers since he was 12. At one point, it seems the war was over when the aliens' orbital battle stations have been destroyed. But now, a second creeper orbital battle station has arrived. While returning to his home unit, Randy's convoy is ambushed. Separated from his fellow soldiers and his canine companion Thor, Randy faces the ultimate horror to become a prisoner of war to the aliens. Black Triumph by Brendan Dubois and Uncompromising Honor by David Weber are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Brendan Dubois to the podcast again. Hey, Brendan, how's it going? It's going great, Tony. How's things with you? All is well in Baintown. Um, we're uh, we're we're drying off from the Florence rains, actually, but all is well. Um, Brendan Dubois is the award-winning author of I don't know. I'm thinking it's nearing fifty or over fifty novels, something like that. It's not that much. Uh, Twenty-two. Not that much. Twenty-two. Yeah. Twenty-two. <laughs> Half. That's still a lot, half that. <laughs> More than 120 short stories. His short stories have twice won him the Seamus Award for the Private Eye Writers of America and have also earned him three Edgar nominations. Um, he's recently collaborated with New York Times bestselling author James Patterson on some novellas for those bookshots. 
um, among other things. Brendan lives in New Hampshire. He's a former Jeopardy champion. I think he celebrated some anniversary of winning that, that show. And very cool. And you also won the Chase, that game show, as well. Yeah, and uh, like a year later, they canceled the Chase. I think they were embarrassed that someone uh, beat their trivia expert, but that's just my opinion. They were lucky to have had you. So, oh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So uh, right now, out of booksellers everywhere is uh, Black Triumph by Brendan Dubois, which is the, the the third and the finale book in this great uh, three-book series called, I guess we're calling it a Dark Victory series. That's the right. First, uh, the first novel is Dark Victory, the second is Red Vengeance, and the third is Black Triumph. Um, so this is a... Uh, Kind of a genre novel, I mean a subgenre novel of the the alien resistance. Can you sort of um, set up the milieu and the, where we are um, in in the beginning and where we where we come to in Black Triumph? Maybe. Sure. The first book, Dark Victory, sort of sets the scene. It's ten years after aliens have invaded the Earth. You know, I take the common trope of an alien invasion and I played with it some more thinking most alien invasion books or novels or screenplays take place right after the alien invasion, and mine takes place ten years later, after most of the adults have been killed off. So it's up to teenagers to maintain the fight. When the aliens invaded, they pretty much knocked us back to a 19th century uh, level of technology. There's no more electronics, there's no more aircraft, there's no more nuclear weapons, it's pretty much steam and telegraph, and we've been fighting the aliens since they invaded. Book one, Dark Victory, sort of set the scene. Black, uh, second one, uh, Red Vengeance, sort of takes the battle and shows you more of a grunt side view. And the third one, Black Triumph, I wrap it all up by sort of answering the main question in the first two books is, why are the aliens here? Um, the question's always been, if aliens have the technology to do interstellar travel, what's the point of coming to Earth? They would already have the technology and the necessities that they would need to come here for resources. So there has to be an alternate reason, and in Black Triumph, that reason is finally uh, revealed. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and and the, this, the idea of, like, the inscrutable aliens, like we're fighting them and fighting them, but we don't understand them yet, um, is is throughout the book, which makes them even scarier in a way. Yeah, and then, you know, that's, and sometimes they do something that doesn't make sense, and it's sort of a constant joke. Well, what do you expect the aliens? Um, you know, there's no, no real rhyme or reason as to why they're attacking. Um, they will ignore some sectors of the country while focusing on others. And as one character said in the very first novel, Dark Victory, listen, if their purpose was to exterminate humanity, they could have done it by, you know, dropping a sort of genetically modified plague that would kill every human being on Earth. So why are they here and why are they fighting? What's the purpose? And again, in Black Triumph, that purpose is revealed. Yeah, it's a great puzzle throughout, and it's a really cool solution as well. So tell us about Randy. Um, Tell us about Randy, uh, our main character, and the narrator. Um, these are first-person novels. Um, 
and he really grows over the course of this, the the series. Yeah, I like to think he does. Uh, when the first book starts, physically, <laughs> yeah, physically, yeah, more ways than one. Uh, he's a sixteen-year-old kid, but he's also a sergeant in the U.S. Army. Like I said before, most adults have died off because they died as the war kicked off. So it's up to the teenagers to keep the battle going. And he is a assigned a canine unit, Thor, who's a Bel- Belgian Malinois, who has been trained to sort of sniff out the aliens and find them. And as the book opens up, he's a typical ground-eyed grunt, just facing the war. But eventually he becomes more in tune and aware as to what's going on in a more strategic, wide sense. Um, and that comes to play in Red Vengeance, where he sort of gets a hint of He's learning more about the battles. He's learning more about himself, but he's also learning more about why the aliens are here. And in book three, um, not to give out too much, but then again, it's not much of a spoiler because it happens in chapter three. He gets captured by the aliens. And for every soldier on planet Earth, that's the ultimate horror to be captured by an alien because no one ever escapes after they've been captured by an alien. And there's just whispers and rumors of horrible things that happen. And sometimes even squads of soldiers, when they realize they're about to be captured, actually kill themselves. They'd rather kill themselves than become uh, a prisoner of war. So the book opens up with uh, a, like a running gun battle, and pretty soon uh, Randy's alone. And in a very heartbreaking scene, again, no spoiler because it happens early on, he has to send his best friend Thor, Belgian Malinois dog that's been at his side for years, he has to order him to go away, otherwise the dog would be killed. And then he gets captured, and things really take off from there. I love the idea that, that there's a there's a word, a command word, that this dog has been taught to obey, to, to go home at all costs. Um, and I think uh, and, and it's Asgard in this book, so he's been trained... If he, if he is told to command Asgard to leave the battlefield and return home to base, because these dogs are valuable, they've been trained, and when it comes to a soldier or a dog, the army wants to save the dog first. Grim, but that's, that's the way it goes. Well, that's because the dogs can smell the creepers coming, right? Smell <laughs> them and they can track them, yep. And the way that... Randy kills the Randy. Rand, what Randy's good at is killing creepers. I mean, there's not many people that are better at it than he is. And even though he has a hard time at it because it's it's damn hard to kill him. But uh, how is it that you kill a creeper? And what are the creepers? Uh, just as a menace, what do they have? The creepers have come to Earth. They uh, they have orbital. They have what the, is known as an orbital battle station, sort of like their home base, which is orbiting Earth. They also have something called killer stealth satellites, which are in a network around Earth that detect any use of electronics. So if it detects electronics being used, like a computer being booted up or a high-tech uh, vehicle or an aircraft, uh, when it, that uh, piece of electronics is destroyed, either via a laser beam or a proton beam or what's called a rod from God. They also have... Uh, what's known as a base dome where it's an impenetrable dome where the aliens reside on earth and there are three types of creepers um there's the transport which transports uh you know supplies 
or prisoners or uh, artifacts that the aliens want to look at. There's the research, which is sort of a scientific inquiry alien that examines things. And then there's the battle creeper, which is just, you know, set out to fight. And they're in very heavily armored arthropods, which are impenetrable to almost everything. But over the years, found that there is a membrane of such that allows the aliens to process human air. And if you use a certain type of binary nerve gas, it will kill the aliens dead. And that's not the only weapon that can be used. What is the weapon that delivers it? It's uh, like, like an elephant gun kind of thing, M10. Or a 50-millimeter uh, 50 round that explodes in a certain proximity to the aliens and produces a cloud of nerve gas. And you got to aim it right so that the alien sort of walks into it or it explodes next to it. And the aliens are very sharp. They have uh, laser beams, and they also have basically a type of flamethrower that they use to uh, counterattack humans that are going after them. Yeah. Uh, the, the aliens can be killed by nuclear bombs. The problem is, how do you transport a nuclear bomb if you can't use a missile, can't use a truck, can't use you know an aircraft because they all have electronics? Yeah, you uh, you actually uh, deal with that problem in a short story we have up at the band website right now, which is a great, great little short story. Yeah, it's called Love in the Time of Interstellar War. Uh, what happened is that the Russians, bless them, being the tough critters they are, I determined one way to, to kill the aliens and their uh, base domes is to bring in a nuclear weapon, nuclear device, right up next to it. But the only way you can do that is to separate it into components and then have humans crawl two to three days until they get next to the dome quickly reassemble it, and then set it off. The downside is the only way you set it off is by a human pulling a switch, because uh, any electronic device, of course, would be sensed. So it's basically a suicide mission. But Russians being the Russians, they have used that to success to uh, destroy um, the alien home bases on Earth. Yeah, and these domes are, are really creepy as well. Um, just like a... Imagine a geodesic dome without all the hatchwork. It's just a blue-gray, impenetrable dome, and occasionally uh, the side of the dome will dilate open and the aliens will crawl out. And one of the creepy parts about the third book, um, Black Triumph, is that for the first time, the readers will get a view inside of what a, uh, an alien creeper dome looks like. Uh, he's sort yeah. of brought in there as a prisoner. And what I liked about, and I will not give a spoiler here, so... Let's just say he's very surprised when he gets into the uh, the dome and finds out what's there. Yeah, it's uh, and uh, not again not to give too much of a spoiler, but um, it is rather. It reminded me a little bit about of of uh, the Martin Sheen character in Apocalypse Now going downriver to <laughs> Cambodia when he's. I like that. That's an excellent analogy. Yeah. When he's like entering into Mr. Kurtz's uh, domain, um, I think. Things get weird and difficult and, and horrific. And The aliens have various technology that uh, they have the, uh, the, they cut people up with laser weapons. They also just whack them with their the legs on these things. Yeah. Um, they have the ability to, again, uh, we don't want to talk, talk too much about it, but, I mean, this the book is about... Uh, Randy's encounter with the creepers and and people who have had a long relationship with the creepers because they we find out that there have been some 
Um, they have the ability to transport uh, folks by a, a sort of uh, like transporter beam, short distances, at least interstellar-wise. Yeah. So um, there are some humans who have been involved with these creatures, and they, they sort of understand what they're up to. Um, maybe not entirely. One of them is uh, the girl he encounters. The one thing I wanted to say about her was just the, the amazing image you, that I have of her. She, she's in space, and she's been hamstrung in a particularly gruesome way. Um, that, and uh, she's, uh, she's been a prisoner of the aliens for 10 years. And, in fact, just a minor spoiler, uh, she was with the U.S. Army's language school over in, uh, I think it's Monterey or Presidio, and she sort of was volunteered to try to make contact with the aliens, try to learn the language, and sort of find out what's going on. And by God, that's what she's been doing for 10 years. And she sort of explains to Randy why they're here, what's their purpose, but she also has a fair number of secrets that she's keeping as well. But the one, th the one great thing about Randy, and the one great thing about <laughs> Brendan Dubois' characters in general, is that they are—they're kind of Jack Reacher types. They just won't stop at whatever their their duty is, right? And Randy is not having any loyal, and they really um, are committed to duty. And sometimes they can be, for lack of a better word, a wise ass, and. Uh, they want to get the job done, and they will broke no one who gets in their way. And they are, they are focused like that. they got to get the job done. Yeah. And, and Randy has become, he was a little bit more demure in the first book because he was 14 and or 16. And, uh, you know, he's going to high school, and he was, he was um, just a grunt. And in, in Black Triumph, he's, he gets his promotion, he becomes an officer, and if anybody deserves to lead people, it's Randy at this point, right? Well, I would agree. Yeah, he's been to hell and back, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, he's gained a lot of experience, and he's um, led both men and women into combat. And uh, I like to think of him as a pretty good leader. Um, I've had a couple of military people, ex-military people, who read the works and said, "Yeah, he's he's a guy you'd want to share a foxhole with." someone to have your back. Yeah, and he just never gives up. And he also knows the difference between an insane stand and um, a tough stand that you might lose. Right, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he's a really cool character. The Serena and Buddy uh, from uh, from the previous books, uh, we see them briefly, um, and, but they're, they're not a huge part of the story. Um, no, they're not. Uh, basically because a lot of the story um, what does not involve them. In fact, they're traveling as most of this um, takes place. But, yeah. Hopefully they don't. Which leads Randy to open up to, uh, I mean, not that Randy is going to, uh, the, the last thing on his mind right now is falling in love with anybody, even though he's, <laughs> but. He does have the possibility of um, of a few love, uh, of a few uh, attraction and interests at least. Because but, you know, his, his... sixteen, seventeen, he, he's looking. You know, he's looking forward 
to life, and uh, he gets through some very uh, crazy times. And uh, in also yeah, and waiting waiting back home for him is uh, waiting back home for him is is uh, dear Abby, who's t- <laughs> a lot of surprises. Uh, Randy encounters humans from other parts of the world, like uh, Australians and Nepalese and some refugees who have an interesting life. Um, and I'd say uh, there's a satisfactory ending to the trilogy. That, I think it's very satisfying. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so uh, reflect back on the trilogy maybe a little bit and tell us um, about its conception and how you, just as a, from a meta writer sort of point of view, how you, you brought it in and... and um, and such. I grew up loving science fiction and fantasy. That's all I read. And I sort of slid into writing mystery fiction because um, I was very mercenary. I started writing mystery fiction. I started selling it. So that sort of put me to that career path. But I still had the love. And a few years back, I was between mystery novels, and I said, you know, let's take some time. Let's experiment. Let's have some fun writing um, science fiction novels. So I started Dark Victory just from the first chapter. I just knew the first chapter, and I wrote it, and I said, oh, this is a lot of fun. And as I was writing it, I was creating the world at the same time, which kids don't try that at home. It's it's tricky stuff. (laughs) And when it was done, my agent at the time said, oh, can't sell this. It's unsaleable for whatever reason. But uh, Tony Weisskopf, the publisher of Bang sent me a note saying how much she enjoyed one of my mystery novels, and so I sent her a note saying thank you, and by the way, I have this science fiction novel, which I take a look at. So I think you and Tony Weisskopf will look to that, and I think you said you're four-fifths of the way there. Uh, it needs a better ending, and yeah, we worked on the ending, and it worked, and I left a little opening for a sequel, and bless your souls, a few months after... Um, it was published. You guys said, you're interested in doing a sequel? And, of course, it took like a second or two to say yes, and that's where we went. So it was a great series to write. I really enjoyed it. And it satisfied a dream I had as a 12-year-old kid to write a science fiction novel. And the fact that uh, I actually published a trilogy, that was just beyond the pale. So, Yeah, cool. Well, we hope it... We hope that that won't be the last science fiction we, we get out of you. Uh, but tell us a little... Tell us a little bit about this power shot thing uh, that you've been doing with uh, Patterson and, and how that works. We had done three, which have already been published, and then we were working on an outline for a fourth, and he said, would you like to make this into a full-length novel? And, of course, I said yes. And then when that one was finished, I asked him, would you like to do another one? And he said yes. So we have two full-length novels come out next March. Uh, the first one is called The First Lady, and the second one is called The Cornwalls Are Missing, and they're both full-length novels uh, that I've co-authored with James Patterson, and probably the most extraordinary writing experience I've ever had in my life. Uh, I learned a lot working with him. And last weekend, I finished the first draft of the third full-length novel I'm working with him on, which does not have a title yet, and I hope to get that to him in a couple weeks. And then... Um, hope we can play again. Working with James Patterson, you're on a high wire because you're working with someone who's, you know, one of the most popular authors on the planet, and you've got to step up your game 
to keep up with him and to make him happy with your work. So I recommend it highly. <laughs> well, well, it sounds like it's been super positive. Oh, it's been great. Uh, it's been a joy working with him. Every, every minute has been fun. It really has. Well, I mean, speaking as an outsider, um, I think he's damn lucky to uh, <laughs> have, have uh, worked with you. Um Especially with your um, your amazing mystery chops and your, uh, your, I think you're one of the best short story writers around. Period. So, um, just a little little chocolate kisses your way from me. So, well, I do love no, I do um, love the short story form. I really do. Uh, can't explain it, but yeah, I really enjoy it. Now, I hear that you wrote something for the uh, the new Man Kazin collection that's coming out in the spring from Bain. Boy, talked about. Um, what a thrill of minute that was. You know, one of my science fiction heroes, uh, when I started reading in the field, was Larry Niven. And I read all of his, you know, known, known Earth series, known universe, uh, uh, series, known space series, I apologize, known space uh, books and short stories. Loved the universe he created, including the, the Kizen and their wars, you know, and Kizen jump first and fight second. Um and then last year, Tony came to me and said, Tony Weisskopf said, would you be interested in authoring a short story for one of the Mankison short story anthologies? And to go from being a fan of Larry Niven's work to actually having the opportunity to write in his universe, I mean, damn, they made my little 12-year-old heart just explode. It was, talk about closing the circles, extraordinary. So much fun, so much fun. Yeah, it's... Um it is going to be out, I believe it's a March or April book next year, maybe April. And um, I heard, uh, this is uh, uh, not set in stone, but I think we're going to anchor it. That is, put the put your story as the ending piece to sort of be the denouement uh, story in the, uh, in the anthology, which is a, usually in an anthology you want to put like one of your great pieces at the end to, to end on a, on a high note, um, and by the way, Christopher Rocchio and I did that in our anthology, Star Destroyers, I believe, with uh, with the Du Bois story, didn't we? Uh, oh yes, we did. We did. Yeah, that's you're absolutely right. Yeah, that was a fun story. Oh, I love writing that story. <laughs> you guys come up with great anthologies idea, and I'm always happy that you invite me to play. Yeah, that was a that was a cool story about a generation ship where the port and starboard went to war with each other. I think. Yeah, the port and starboard went to war, and they fight over uh, scientific resources, and we'll leave it at that. That's a nice little surprise at the end, yeah. So um, out now is Black Triumph, which is the third book in the Dark Victory series in the finale, and it sums it all up, and it's a great uh, adventure read by Brendan Dubois. Um at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Brendan, thank you so much for talking with us about um, this uh, this final book in a great series. Well, thank you, Tony, and the other Tony, for uh, making a 12-year-old kid's dream come true of being a published science fiction author. It was a lot of fun, and I look forward to working with the two Tonys again soon. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, 
and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. A few minutes passed. There was a single chair in the hall. The order was supposed to be above petty house politics and devoted entirely to the rule of law. They kept an office here only as a demonstration of that fact, and they kept that office humble in an attempt to keep their power from going to their heads. The chairs weren't even padded. If they had guests, then a slave would bring in a cushion. After weeks in the saddle, he wouldn't have minded that minor comfort. So Ashok remained standing. He was so tired that he probably could have slept standing up. He'd done it before. The door opened and the slave came out. The master will see you now, she said, keeping her eyes averted. Slaves were usually born of the worker or warrior castes, dishonored, demoted, and sold for some reason or other, but still needed to perform the necessary tasks that were above the filthy, untouchable castless, like tending to the needs of an honored hero suffering from disease. You may go, Ashok told her as he entered. The curtains were mostly closed. The room was far too warm. It took a moment for his eyes to adjust to the dim light. There was someone on the bed. He almost didn't recognize the skeletal figure propped up on a pile of pillows because he had lost so much weight. Mindarin was a shadow of himself. Lord Protector. Ashok. Mindarin opened his eyes. Despite his haggard appearance, at least they were as clear and focused as ever. I knew you'd come, lad. I'm here to serve. As always, for that has been your life, to serve without question. Never to question. His words were slurred and clumsy. It was an unjust fate for the one who had been their most eloquent defender. Mindarin had accomplished more with his words than with the sword, because in his case they had been equally sharp. To hear him now made Ashok's chest ache. I knew that if I lived long enough for you to return, then this meeting was meant to be. The dying man wheezed. Oh, how I wish I could be as pure in my devotion to the law as you've been. Ashok knelt next to the bed. I am nothing more than what you made me. No. You were the creation of another. The order merely gave you purpose. 
You are a sense of duty made flesh. You are the living avatar of the law. You were a blank canvas and on it was writ devotion. You were the perfect student because you were designed to be. It is easy to be the ideal protector when you have no choice in the matter. Mindarin gave a raspy laugh. I suppose we are all slaves in some way. That made no sense. Perhaps the master's mind wasn't as clear as he'd first thought. I was obligated to serve by my house, but I took the oath willingly, and it is the best thing I've done. Mindaran took a deep breath, as if preparing himself for a great labor. Asher could tell that he was calling upon the strength of the heart. When that borrowed energy was gone, the resulting strain would probably finish him off. Please rest. There's no need. I must. When Mandarin spoke again, his words were stronger, far more forceful. Here again, this was the man Ashok had known. When I was struck down and knew I was dying, I had to make a difficult decision. Summoning you here was one of the hardest things I've done. I realize cleaning the stain from my own conscience is no reason to condemn you. So now I offer you a choice, Ashok. On one hand, I can remain silent and you will continue to live your life. I offer you my place as master, or you may return to your house with honor. It was as Devadas had predicted, the choice he'd been dreading, to retire in glory or continue to serve the order. I'll do whatever you ask of me. You speak too quickly. That isn't the choice. I'm offering your life, however you wish to live it, or the truth. Leave things alone, retain the lie, and do with the rest of your days whatever you desire. But the truth, the truth will ruin you. It will change everything. Uncertainty was an unfamiliar feeling. Mandarin reached out one shaking hand and laid it on Ashok's cheek. His skin was dry and thin as paper. I have summoned you because I am selfish. I have failed the law and failed you. My conscience isn't clean. Ashok was no stranger to death, but right now he felt ill. What would you have me do? so you may die in peace. Offering you this choice is enough. In that drawer is a message. It is the reason you are without fear. It is a secret known only to myself and Master Ratul before me. It had been years since he'd heard that name spoken aloud by another protector. Just thinking of the former Lord Protector filled Ashok with disgust. His secrets should remain hidden. Ratul worshipped the forgotten while he pretended devotion to the order. I'm ashamed he's the one I gave the oath to. He was a lawbreaker and a traitor. Yet he was also my dearest friend, and his beliefs saved your life. Before he fled to join the heretics, he told me what the heart of Ramroan revealed you to be. Ramroan? 
It was the first time Ashok heard the heart of the mountain given that unfamiliar name. I know who I am. I know my place. Good. That is how it should be. If you wish to continue living, burn the letter and never think on this moment again. Ashok was silent for a long time. What manner of lie? One that will cause no further harm. And I kept your secret for the same selfish reasons Ratul did. You have been our greatest instrument of justice. This order is stronger than we have been in generations. We are respected, honored, even feared. And it is a result of the legend you have created with that mighty sword. If you wish to know what Ratul saw in the heart, read it. Then do as you see fit. Ashok stood up, went to the writing desk and opened the drawer. The only thing inside was a sealed letter. It's coded. If you wish, I will give you the cipher, but remember, sometimes lies are for our own protection. This is your choice. Do not make it lightly, Ashok. Was this some sort of test? A trick? He reached for the letter and then hesitated. What does the law say I should do? For once in your life, do not make this about the law. Indaran's words showed surprising strength. But the law is everything. Ashok picked up the letter. His face was flushed, his hands trembling. He was growing angry and wasn't even sure why. You know I was never one for your puzzles and word games. I'm not one for your riddles to be solved. I am a protector. You are a killer. And the best one we've ever had. Ashok snarled. You tell me what to do and I do it. Point me toward the violators and I destroy them. Punishing the lawbreakers and striking terror in the hearts of those who even think of stepping over the line, that is my place. I follow orders. I keep order. I don't choose. There's no choice. If this is some sort of test of my worthiness, Angrul Vidal decided that a long time ago. The question then became, how many lies were we willing to tell to justify its decision? The borrowed vitality was beginning to leave Mindaran. His skin turned ashen, his voice lost its previous strength, and he seemed to melt back into the bed once again. Nothing but a shadow, skeletal as the guardians on the mountain. It's remarkable what we can forget. We've forgotten our gods. Compared to that, what is one life? I don't have enough time left to keep the lies straight anymore, Ashok. With truth comes suffering. With ignorance comes freedom. Choose. He quoted his lessons from memory. There is no freedom. Every man has a place. Then he recalled the stubborn castless who'd refused to give up his spear on the beach in Gujara. Truth doesn't change the law. Choose. Ashok broke the seal. Chapter 8 Twenty years ago, 
As the richest, most powerful house, Vidal was the last to be announced during the induction ceremony. Aunt Bidea had prepared Ashok for this by explaining that it was all politics. Vidal could afford to wait. It tells our rivals that we saved the best for last. Ashok found the protector's audience chamber to be surprisingly humble. Perhaps it was because he was used to the beauty of Vidal holdings that he connoted power with opulence. Except the protectors were powerful, and their audience chamber had less decoration than a Vidal horse stable. The simple room was crowded with representatives of every great house and their candidates for obligation. Everyone was dressed in furs or thick robes, and their breath could be seen in the air. The windows were open. The ceremonial chamber wasn't heated. It wasn't as if a militant order with the blessing of the Inquisition couldn't afford to run the furnace. It was the protector's way of telling their guests that they didn't give a damn about anyone's comfort. The representative from House Vaucan finished his long description of his charges, exploits, accomplishments, and championships. The oldest was only 13 years old, so he couldn't have done that much, but that was the game. The tales were surely exaggerated, but this part was all about trying to outdo the other houses. Whoever gave the most valuable obligations would be able to brag about it in the courts. Ashok didn't understand these games that his aunt spoke about, but he understood honor, duty, and the law. Each of those things demanded that he be here now. The protector in charge of the ceremony walked in front of the kneeling young men, inspecting them. Once satisfied, he made a mark on his scroll. The order thanks Great House Vokan for their generous obligation of seven sons of the warrior caste and one son of the first caste. He sounded bored. They will proceed to testing. Despite the order's power, the protectors of the law were few in number. A single master was presiding. His witnesses were a senior and a few other acolytes, barely older than the boys who were being obligated. While the presenters and their charges had decorated their winter clothing with ornaments, jewelry, and silks dyed the colors of their houses, the protectors were dressed in drab cloaks, fit for workers. The master checked his list again as he moved to the end of the line. Great House Vidal has brought a single candidate. Your lady must not be aware of our failure rate. The other presenters were curious. The dumb ones found that amusing. The smart ones realized that Vidal was up to something. The master stopped before the small Vidal contingent. He stood there for a while in the cold winter sun, taking his time. Ashok kept his back straight and his eyes fixed on a crack in the wall as the old man studied him. Present your obligation. The other presenters were arbiters and other courtly types. Ashok was the only one being introduced by a wizard. Kuhl was a small, quiet, odd-looking fellow. He stepped out of line and cleared his throat before speaking. On behalf of Bidea, Thakur of Great House Vidal, as per our contract, I obligate to the Order of Protectors the second son of deceased Jayish of the first caste, 
who was once arbiter of Goda province. Here is Ashok, aged ten years. A single candidate, and the youngest one here. This will end well, the protector muttered. Everyone heard that, and there was a bit of laughter. Ashok kept his gaze fixed on a distant point and showed no emotion, just as he'd been taught. What are his accomplishments? The other candidates had gotten long litanies of achievements. Ashok's was brief. He is the chosen bearer of mighty Angruvadal. Kuhl finished his pronouncement and returned to his place in line. The snickering died. Nervous whispers immediately rose among the other house's presenters. Angruvadal? Several of them broke protocol by turning their heads to try and catch a glimpse of the sword, sheathed at the boy's side. All they would be able to see was that it appeared to be far too long for him to wield it worth a damn. They would be incorrect. What? The old protector glanced at the wizard, then at Ashok, then at his list, and back at the wizard. Hausvedal is obligating the bearer of its ancestor blade. You are correct, Lord Protector. Kuhl bowed respectfully. Which is why we believe just the one will be sufficient. The other nervous young men who were being obligated to the order kept their eyes forward. Ashok remained kneeling, motionless as the rest. He had been instructed not to move until told to move, nor to speak unless spoken to. He was mostly motionless, except for the shivering. That couldn't be controlled. The headquarters of the Protector Order, like most important things, was in the capital, but its training program was in the barren mountains of the Devacula. So all of the boys from the warmer northern houses were having a difficult time. The annual ceremony was held during the winter, probably because any children who died along the hard journey through the passes saved the protectors the effort of having to weed out the weak later. The protector's mood changed from bored to angry very quickly. He'd probably had some small speech prepared, but it had been forgotten once he'd learned someone had brought something so deadly into his castle. The ceremony is concluded. The presenters will be escorted out. The obligated will be shown to their quarters. Except for the Vidal delegation. You stay here. The other houses complied, the boys looking nervous or happy to have made it this far. While their political masters seemed frustrated or curious by this new development. The senior ushered everyone else out, and soon it was only the master, the wizard, and Ashok who remained in the giant, freezing room. What is Vidal playing at, wizard? Kuhl smiled, showing his oddly pointed teeth. There is no game here, Lord Protector, merely a demonstration of our house's extreme devotion to the law. All of the details are in the contract which was presented to your representatives in the capital. It has already been approved by the judges. All that remains is for you to accept the obligation of this child as acceptable. All that we have asked in return is that should Ashok perish, the sword be returned to its rightful house so that it may choose a new bearer. Stand up, the protector shouted. 
Ashok leapt to his feet. The protector circled him, eyeing the sword sheathed on his belt. The handle and guard were dark and unremarkable. Draw the sword. He did as he was told. Three feet of black steel was freed from the leather. And Gruvedal wanted to know who it was supposed to cut. No one yet. Be still. When the sword came out, his shivering ceased. He held it out with one hand, horizontal to the floor, careful not to take up any sort of fighting stance so that Angruvadal would not get the wrong idea. Angruvadal was shaped like a typical sword of House Vidal. Most likely, they were based on it. Unlike most swords in Locke, Angruvadal was straight, not curved in any way. It was double-edged, sharp enough on either side to effortlessly lop off a man's arm. The grip was long enough for two-hand use. Though the pommel, grip, and guards didn't give off the same eye-searing glow as the blade itself, they weren't separate pieces, but seemed to have grown organically from the whole. For something so valuable, there was absolutely no ornamentation to it at all. Not that there was any way to decorate Angruvadal, since it was made out of a material that couldn't even be scratched. Most people were afraid to come too close to the blade because they'd heard the stories, but not the protector. He loomed over Ashok and demanded, hold it up toward the lantern so I can see. Ashok did so, and they both watched it devour the flickering light. It is truly one of the most dangerous things in the entire world, Kuhl warned. It burns the eye to look directly at it, the protector whispered as he stared into the blade. It is said that a warrior with one of these can break an army by himself. History has repeatedly demonstrated that to be true. Kuhl had hunkered back down into his coat to hide from the chill, nearly disappearing until only his tiny black eyes poked out over the fur. It can slay demons as if they are normal flesh and bone. Lawbreakers will tremble before its wrath. Imagine what the Order could do with such a tool. And now it is yours to direct, for the good of the law, of course. The Protector hadn't realized that he'd been drawn in until his breath was steaming on the sword. He was so close that Asher could remove the top of his head with the flick of a wrist. A man could lose himself staring into that abyss. He stepped back. Sheathe it, now. Angruvadal felt disappointed at being put away. The other protectors had returned from shooing out the presenters. They were watching as well, seemingly just as fascinated as their master. Is it true? The senior asked. It's the real thing, and it didn't take his life for daring to pull it so we can assume this is no fraud, the master said. Imagine what we could accomplish with a bearer in our ranks, the senior said. Answer my questions carefully, boy. Answer them as if your life depends on it, because it truly does. Yes, Lord Protector, Ashok said. Your house has given you to us. Do you willingly give your life over to the order? He hadn't asked that to the others. Except the others didn't possess an ancient device capable of destroying them all. 
Yes, Lord Protector. You will follow your instructions without question? I will. You will do exactly as I say? I am Ratul, 25-year master. This is Mandarin, 18-year senior. If I am indisposed or dead, you will answer to him. Now, keep your sword sheathed and remove it from your person. Ashok unbuckled his sword belt. The protector stuck out his hand. Give it to me. Master, one of the acolytes warned. It will destroy you. According to tradition, only if I should try to wield it. The old protector took hold of the belt strap. The sword hung there, leather creaking as he held it at arm's length. Ashok could tell the sword wasn't offended. Ratul addressed the sword with far more respect than he had given any of the representatives of the great houses. We mean no disrespect, Angruvadal. First, the law must be upheld. Then he passed the sword to the senior, Mandarin, who took it without hesitation, though he was careful not to touch the sword itself. Huel looked on as if this was all mildly amusing. The master roughly put his hands on both sides of Ashok's face. The boy flinched, but the protector dragged him over and forced Ashok's eyes open with his thumbs. He stared through Ashok's eyes, and there was a terrible pain inside his head. Ashok didn't flinch. I thought so. The protector let go, and the pain subsided. There is magic in this boy. Some, Hugh agreed. What have you done to him, wizard? As a child, Ashok suffered a terrible accident. A fire in the middle of the night, and his family perished. He alone survived, but was found in the ruins of their home, with heart, mind, and body broken. Since he was of the first caste, Arthakur had me put him back together. Good thing, too, since he was later chosen by the sword. No illegal magic was used in the healing, I can assure you. My notes about his treatment are available to Inquisition auditors if you would like them examined. I do not trust you. Kuehl may have shrugged. It was difficult to tell beneath the thick coat. Then you must ask yourself, Lord Protector, does your order want access to the sword or not? The master folded his arms, seemingly deep in thought, staring at Ashok. Not having his sword at his side was unnerving, so Ashok found the crack in the wall and fixed his attention on that again. The mere presence of such a device within the order will deter lawbreakers, Mindarin said, still carefully holding the sword as if it were a serpent that might bite him. I believe it to be worth the risk. I will accept responsibility for this one. Latoul nodded slowly. Very well. If Ashok cannot be controlled, you're the one that has to try and kill him. Note, I said try. You've not seen what a bearer can do. He turned his back to Kuehl. Wizard, your house's obligation has been accepted. Get out. Kuehl bowed again, then turned and shuffled out the door without another word. 
Even though Ashok had lived in the wizard's household while he'd been healing from the accident, there wasn't so much as a farewell. Ashok kept staring at the crack while the protectors clustered around the hanging sword. Do those Vidal fools have any idea of the risk they are taking? Are their heads crammed so far up their own asses that they think being the talk of the capital is worth losing their house? Ratul mused. Maybe a great house is really that devoted to upholding the law. They all laughed. It was almost as if he had been forgotten entirely. Ashok was temporarily thankful, but that moment passed and Ratul returned his attention to him. Ashok, you are now an acolyte in the Order of Protectors. Your training begins immediately. Devadas will escort you to the barracks. That will be all. One of the acolytes stepped forward. This way. Though he was not that much older than Ashok, he already carried himself like a protector, and to Ashok's inexperienced eye, appeared to be nearly as dangerous as the others. The other newly obligated had all been armed. Ashok looked to Mindarin, and then to his sword, hanging there, creaking against the leather. May I have my sword back now? No, Ratul answered. Why? Ratul frowned, then nodded at one of the older acolytes. That one stepped forward and struck Ashok in the face. The four snapped his head back on his neck and sent him crushing hard into the floor. Blood came rolling out of his nose, and he could taste it on his lip. Ashok could feel Angruvadal's desire to help. No. He had made a mistake. Ratul's actions had been correct. Ashok held no animosity. The sword was content. Questioning an order? Already are off to a fine start. Lord Protector, if I may, Devadas interjected. This one isn't like the others. That sword is more than a weapon to him. Part of his fire is inside it forever. To a bearer, losing his blade is worse than one of us losing an arm. Ashok wiped the blood from his lip, got up and stood at attention. Devadas was correct. He couldn't even remember a time before the sword. Hmm. You would know of such things. What did your father do after he was deprived of his ancestor blade? He slowly went mad until he flung himself into the sea to be devoured by demons, Lord Protector. Devadas answered. Seems reasonable. So, Ashok, I'll grant an answer to your question as to why you cannot have your sword. Our program does not test 50 generations of a house. It does not test the strength of your ancestors. It tests you, and you alone. You will survive or perish on your own merits, not by the memories within your sword. You will have no advantage over your brother. If you fail and live, it will be returned to you. If you fail and die, it will be returned to your house along with your corpse. If you go insane, the nearest ocean is 200 miles that direction. But since we're on the side of a mountain, there are plenty of places to leap to your death if you are so inclined. You certainly wouldn't be the first acolyte to do so. Asher continued staring at the wall. 
Latoul correctly took that as assent. Know this, Ashok. There is no room in the order for weakness, so I will not give you a crutch. To do so would only make you weaker than you could be. The law is only as strong as those who enforce it. If you last long enough to prove that you are worthy on your own to be one of us, then I will return your sword. Until then, it will remain in our vault. Don't worry. None of us are fool enough to try to use it, and if anyone unworthy attempts to steal it, we both know what the sword will do to them. You are dismissed. The barracks were as frigid as the audience chamber. There were no beds, just woven mats on the floor. Devadas directed Ashok toward one corner. You will be issued a uniform and basic supplies. Get some rest. Tomorrow's going to be the hardest day of your life. Then it will get worse. Thank you for explaining my hesitation to Master Ratul. It was the truth. Nothing more. That's our job. When you've gained the respect of your seniors, you'll be allowed to speak freely as well. Until then, it's best if you keep your mouth shut. Your father was a bearer. Perhaps I did not emphasize mouth shut, Devadas said. At this rate, I'll be amazed if you last a week. Ashok bowed. Annoyed, the older student just shook his head and left the barracks. The sleeping mat was very thin. He could feel the cold of the floor seeping through it already. It was going to be miserable to sleep on. Kuhl had warned him that the protectors thrived on discomfort, but knowing something and experiencing it were two separate things. With the sword, he could do anything. Without it, he was only human. His devotion to the law would have to carry him through. Ashok realized the barracks were too quiet. The other newly obligated acolytes were all staring at him. He studied their faces. Already they knew he wasn't like them. He would never be like them. No matter how hard they trained, or how much courage they had in their hearts or strength in their arms, they would never be his equal. So be it. The law said that every man had a place. His house had declared his place to be here. He stared back at the others. They were doing their best to hide their doubts and fears, but Ashok didn't need to hide what he did not possess. They didn't know what they were yet. He knew exactly what he was. Rest, brothers. Tomorrow we demonstrate our conviction to the law. He sat back on his uncomfortable mat, knowing that he would show Master Atul that he was worthy and get his sword, and the rest of himself, back. While the others tossed and turned, longing for a home or having nightmares, Ashok had no trouble sleeping at all. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and the podcast theme composer Ruth Jugkowitz. 
And around a fireworks, lollipops, seahorses, and other surrealistic cross-dimensional invaders come to offer their huzzas, wowzas, and what's up, plus terrestrial thanks and praise for Brendan Dubois, author of Black Triumph. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 